Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. I'm here in, you might call it the turret, I'm standing next to the light in Galleyhead Lighthouse. Explain where we are and what I'm looking at, Charles. Okay, well we're up here in the top of the lighthouse and um, you're looking at the ocean when you look out. You can see from the Stags Rocks there off Towhead and Skibbereen and you have a panoramic ocean view all the way right around until you see the seven heads there off Clonakilty. Um, it's a lovely evening, I can see for miles. Yeah, oh, and the, this is what you want, an evening like this. Once the wind is in anywhere from the north, the horizon comes nice and clear. Yeah. Uh, you have about 25-30 um, mile radius uh, of visibility, which is beautiful to have. So tell um, me about this wonderful device that's next. This is a modern one, this is computer controlled, electronically controlled. Yeah. But go back. Go back in time. Okay. Well, back in the year 1846, there was a Captain Wolfe in the British Navy. He was working with the Coast Guard at the time, and he recommended that a light should be established here on Galley Head, another one on the Bull Rock, which is off the Dursey Island, another one on Inish Tirith, which is one of the Blaskets, and another one up on Black Rock Mayo, where the helicopter crashed there a few years ago. All the rest went ahead, but the one here didn't. They kept blocking it. That was in 1846. Then in 1871, there was a ship collided with the Dulic Rock. You can just see it there, to, slightly to the west. Yeah. And the name of that ship was the Crescent City. On the same night that that ship was lost, there was another ship had already foundered inside in Ross Carberry Bay. Is that the one I can see from here? Like a little cluster of stones? Yeah, and it's it's, it's almost at water level. So you can see how dangerous it is for shipping. Because a ship, back in the day, a ship would be on top of that without even seeing it. It's not that far from us either, is it? No, no, it's about a quarter of a mile from where we are now. It's very close to the headland. But uh, it did, it claimed the, the... the demise it brought about the demise of the Crescent City and the Cecil was the second ship lost that same night and there was nobody lost their lives on the two of those shipwrecks however 13 days later there was a third ship lost here called the Joseph Sprott and that ship was lost up there on the Long Strand now the Joseph Sprott had sailed from the South China Sea all the way up along the West African coast um, the yeah, the West African coast, I keep getting that mixed up, and uh, finally came to grief up here. Now, 
everybody was reported drowned on that ship. However, there about seven years ago, there was a lady from the UK and she was doing a look into her family background. She found her great-grandmother came from County Meath, but as a three-year-old child had been shipwrecked on the Cork coast, having sailed from the South China Sea in 1871. The only known ship lost on the Cork coast in that year at that time was the Joseph Sprott. So that's the only connection we have to say that that's where that little girl came from. Mm. However, um, it, with her research, what she found was if a sailing ship was coming in close to the shore and was in heavy weather, the ship would have to tie the child, you had a child on board, the, the parents would have to tie the child to the table, tie it to um, the bed, or to a post, the child had to be tied because when the ship would be heaving in the water, the child would be bounced from one side to the other. So they tied their child to a closed trunk. The ship was a composite ship made with steel frames and timber planking, which wasn't a good combination, but that's what they were using at the time. When it struck the rocks, it broke up and sank very quickly. And the sea was in so much turmoil that nobody could swim in it, so everybody was very quickly drowned. However, up shot this box with the little girl tied on top of it and she was washed up onto the long strand. She was taken from there by a family called Galway. Uh, they were landowners in this area at the time. They had a house in Ardfield and a place in the long strand. And they got that little girl um, adopted by a prison warden on Spike Island. So uh, the prison warden was a married man and they had a natural child of their own. Very shortly after this girl coming into their lives, uh, the wife died. The man's wife, she just died. And very shortly after that again, in his own arms, his little baby died, his natural child. So he went on the drink and he found himself dismissed from the prison service and he headed back up to County Meath. He brought the little girl with him. He died himself shortly after and what was killing people at the time is TB was rampant. Mm. She remained on in County Meath until she was about 14. And at that age, she headed across to London. She joined in with an Irish community and she eventually forged out a good enough life for herself in as much as she became a nurse, she got married, and it was the generation coming after her, they disposed of the clothes trunk. So that travelled with her and how we would just love to get our hands on a splinter of that, anything off it. Because it's brand new history attached to the galley. And just down, literally down from where we are here. Yeah, just out within stone's throw. So anyway, um, getting back to it then, uh, the matter was raised in the House of Commons to know why this lighthouse did not go ahead in 1846 when Captain Wolfe recommended it. So. Uh, the Irish Lights then very quickly uh, got their act together. They purchased the headland and they awarded the building contract to a man called William Martin Murphy. He was a founder member of the Irish Independent newspaper, mm -hmm. uh, the cause of the 1913 lockout in Dublin, a Bantry man, but at that time, because of his labour relations, probably the most hated man in Dublin. However, he's the man who built up this lighthouse first ray of light shone out of here on the 1st of January 1878.
the lens you're looking at there, that's called a biform light or a biform lens. But in 1878, it was quadriform. And they were using the center sections there with the rings, the dioptric rings. They had four of those superposed, one, two, three, and four, equally spaced out on top of each other. How was it lit back then? It was lit then with um, gas from coal. This was put in by a guy called John Wiggum. John Wiggum came over to Ireland at the age of 15, apprenticed to his brother-in-law, Joshua Edmondson. They had a foundry works in Capel Street in Dublin. They did a pile of work for the Irish Lights. And so they did the steel work here. And at the age of 19, he was only four years in Ireland, when Joshua Edmondson died again of TB. But Wiggum took over the running of Edmondson's. He looked after his sister very well. And he invented the gas burner that went into these lights. He put 10 of them in. This was the last one he did. And what he did was he would distill the, the gas from the coal in a furnace. Put the, it was cannel coal what they used because cannel coal, when it was broke down into coke tar and gas, the gas when it was burned gave off a very white light, which made it very useful for burning in a lighthouse. So Wiggum, um, he, put four of he put four of those, superposed one, two, three, four, and in each light, he had 108 fishtail jets of gas in seven concentric rings. So that was a huge amount, uh, 432 jets when all four tiers were... It must have taken an awful lot of coal to keep that fired up. Absolutely, it was guzzling coal. Now, would that be burned here then? Yes, right. the, the gas house was out in the, in the gas yard, and also there were two gasometers there for storing and cooling and pressurising the gas. And, and I take it this had to be physically shoveled in all the time? Yes. So what they, what they would do, there was a local man employed, uh, Johnny Feen, he was a, called the gas man, and he would take this uh, cannel coal, put it into a retort, seal it up. Now that retort would be maybe four or five feet in length and about two feet in diameter. He would put the coal into it, put it into the furnace and redden it. So when it was what they call cherry red, then uh, the, coke, the, the coal inside broke down and the gas was piped from that retort out into the gasometers in the gas yard. It was then piped from there through the houses and up into the lighthouse. So it was a very... Um, it was a very, it was a good system in its time. Massively labour intensive. No, extremely labour intensive. Um, but that was the way, that was the best light. It was then declared to be, it was exhibited. And you'd have to haul an awful lot of coal up the side of that mountain there, right? Oh yeah, yeah. Well, the delivery of course. How did he do that? Well, all by uh, horse and cart, uh, delivered, yeah, from, from Clannacilty. And um, yeah, it was extremely labour intensive. Um, then... Um, the gas uh, continued until the year 1907. In that year, they did away with it. Now, I must say to you, when this was first lit on the 1st of January 1878, it was declared to be the biggest and the brightest light in the world at that time. Wow. Because there were four tiers of light in it, certainly made it the biggest. And with the amount of um, lumens coming from that, it was definitely the brightest. Like how, how far did that beam go out to that, sea? That beam went to the horizon. Even though the nominal range is often declared to be less, um, the, the horizon here is close on 30 miles, the, the shaft of light reached that without wow. any problem. 
Um, anyway, the gas continued until the year 1907. In that year, they did away with the gas and put in this apparatus we're looking at now, which is, or was, a biform light with two paraffin vapour burning lamps inside them. On the same principle, if you like, as the Tilly lamp, um, but a bigger version. Both of these were lighting at the same time. The candle power of that light was 362,000 candles. Um, the lens are a Fresnel lens designed by Augustus Fresnel in the year 1821. And what he did was, if you take the curvature of glass going around in rings, for magnification, it was also protruding out this way. Fresnel cut that into rings because uh, the glass was too thick, it was absorbing too much light and was putting a green hue into the light as well. So it was very, very weak. He cut that into rings, set them back into each other and he magically didn't lose any of the uh, magnification power or the focusing power of the lens. When he did that, that was revolutionary. He did that in 1821. The following year, he made a series of them, rotated them on top of a platform around a light and exhibited it on top of the Champs-Élysées in Paris. That made his lens revolutionary. They were used right around the world from that time on, mm. and even to today. Uh, when he did that, he reduced the weight of the lens considerably. So then they were able to float the lens on a bath of mercury. And that's what these lens are doing now. They're extremely silent, they're two-ton weight, mm. and still they're effortlessly gliding around. Yeah. How are they? That's not hydraulic. It's moving as we speak here, and you can't even hear it. This enormous structure, which must be what? Is that 10 About or 15? Yes, it, it would be. Yeah, 10 or 15. Yeah. And we can't hear a sound. No, it's very big. And that's the beauty of floating it on Mercury. It is the most perfect bearing that has ever been wow. um, um, manufactured. However, um, once these lens were underway, uh, it, it was very easy to keep them going. Therefore, it was possible to operate these by a weight-driven clockwork motor. And on the same principle as the grandfather clock with the weight going down mm. to do the clockwork. And that's what was going on here. All they had to do was govern the speed of the weight falling down through the lighthouse so as to give us a constant 20 seconds into one revolution. Yeah. There are five lenses on it. So that's the signature of galley head. It means that a ship out at sea will see five flashes every 20 seconds. Now I told you there in the beginning, there was two ships lost here on the same night, the Crescent City and the Cecil. What happened to the Cecil was happening to a lot of ships around the coast. When a ship came over the horizon, they looked ashore, owing to the absence of longitude, they were not able to um, know where they were. All they could see in the distance was a very thin, narrow band of land. So they would have to come in close to the shore uh, and try to find out where they were. They needed huge space to be able to turn that sailing ship around and bring it back out again. The wind that blew them in is the same wind that was going to drag them back out again. They weren't always able to do that because those ships were very, very difficult to manoeuvre. So they would look for a bay, drop anchor and ride out the stormy conditions. And that's what happened to Cecil. Most of the bays, the ocean floor is made up of mud, sand or gravel. So when they let go of their anchor, uh, they are now totally dependent on the anchor. And th these anchors were just ploughing through the soft ground on the bottom and the ship was winding up on top of the rocks. With the advent of this, they were able to sit out there 15 or 20 miles, wait until dark, time the light, uh, refer to an international publication called the Admiralty List of Lights, yeah. 
with that they knew exactly where they were because galley head has five flashes every 20 seconds the old head of Kinsale has two flashes every 10 Fastener to the west of us has one flash every five so that gives you an idea oh so that's how a ship at sea who doesn't really know where it is yeah each Lighthouse has its own signature flash. Yes. Wow, I never knew that. No, and it, it, that's how coastal navigation evolved. Wow. Remembering this, that when the Crescent City hit the Dulic Rock in 1871, they thought they were off the old head of Kinsale. When in 1846, the Stephen Whitney was lost in Skull, they also thought they were off the old head of Kinsale. So that gives you an idea yeah. how inaccurate navigation was. Wow. So owing to the... Um, Owing to this then, uh, the amount of sh shipwrecks uh, dropped and ships then were levied. They paid pence per ton of their own weight for every light they passed. This would be collected by customs when the ship docked in port. It was pulled over in Trinity House in London. So there's a board of commissioners from the Irish Lights, a board of commissioners to run the English Lights and another board to run the Northern Lights of Scotland and the Isle of Man. They're all independent of each other, but nonetheless funded from the same source. So this was a user pay service, right. never a burden on taxation. Really? Whereas in America, the Treasury fund the lighthouses and they argue that it's much better for industry in the country mm. if the government are funding um, these lighthouses. Has never been happily agreed upon, so this is the way it operates to this present day. Oh, so that there's a tax, if you want, or a levy paid by the but users of the shipping channel yeah. to fund this. To fund this. Oh. And <clears throat> that's how. Um, and then there was enough. Um, ships going up and down London River all through the 20th century with what voyages in the river to fund the three services on its own. So this was an extremely well-funded service. Um, so the lens, getting back to the light then, the lens, uh, the weight used to take a half an hour to reach the bottom, the weight that rotates lens. So that had to be winched up every half hour. There were two keepers here for that duty. So the first watch started at sunset and continued until 2 a.m. in the morning when the second keeper came on duty. And he remained on until sunrise. And what would he do then? He would do. Every half hour, he had to make sure he had that weight winched up to the top of the lighthouse. He also had to check the oil, pr the air pressure, a bigger pardon, on top of the oil because there was a, a, a pressure of 60 pounds maintained down on top of the oil to drive that oil up into the light and that oil pressure is what guaranteed 360,000 candle power, 262,000 candles. So that was his duty, was to make sure that that was functioning exactly like that. Also, he would keep an eye out for shipping, for any distress or any unusual activity of the station. Now, you spent many, many years operating these lighthouses. Tell us a bit about it, John. What, what, what was it like to work these places? And you were on the rock, miles yeah. away from anywhere. Um, the rock stations were... Um, it was a different experience completely because to start with you were completely cut off you went out onto this rock there you stayed for a month you brought your provisions with you for a fortnight and a fortnight later um, your next load of provisions were landed so you had to look after yourself on that rock 
um, you had to do your watch keeping that I was just explaining to you. There were three keepers on the rock and um, isolation was a huge challenge. Um, it's a challenge to certain people and not to others. In my case, I didn't find the challenge. I really enjoyed the isolation because what I liked about it was the time that it afforded me to, let's just say, to become who I was to become or mm. to be able to do what I was able to do for myself. So, um, that they were the, the, the personal things about it. Um, then on the other hand, in the summertime, you had a lot of free time because you were four hours on duty, eight hours off. Mm. So during the daytime, uh, we'd go down to the rock, to the water's edge, we'd go swimming, we'd go fishing. When I was on the bull rock, I used to put on my diving suit and I used to swim off the rock and um, I used to fish for uh, pollock. Uh, I take my heaving line with me and I used to get some whoppers, big, big pollock. It was so difficult to lift them. They were that powerful to keep pulling you down and you'd swim up with them. All that kind of thing. Diving for crayfish was another thing I loved doing. Yeah. And um, uh, for all those reasons, um, it made, uh, for me anyway, it made my time out on these rocks a complete holiday. In the winter time, it was the direct uh, contrast. Pretty bleak, I'd say. Extremely bleak. Uh, a lot, and I mean a lot, of heavy weather. You'd have a lot of very, very strong, violent winds and uh, mountainous seas. But even that was an experience as well. It was an experience you would never take for granted. Mm. So, um, um, it depends on what way you look at it, but on both sides of the scale, for me, it was just fantastic. Now, these were all electrified and computerized. So, like, so where we are right now, no one actually lives here anymore. No one actually stays on site. No, no, no. This place now is a, it's a holiday home. This is the house now where we grew up here. And um, when the Irish lights were automating these places, they were winding, they were facing a problem. And that is that the houses were going to fall into disrepair. Mm. So they went into partnership with a, an organisation called the Irish Landmark Trust that was just formed in Dublin at that time. And they lease the houses, or our old home, they lease that to the Landmark. The Landmark Trust, um, they restored these houses completely and they then let them out as a holiday net. So um, that's how they're functioning now. It gives the house a new lease of life, guarantees its future, if you like, uh, yeah. into, the, into the future. Are you the if you want the keeper now of this light still. Yes. But how do you operate off from off site? Like where do you live? I live up in, in Rathbury. Um, the light was uh, automated and when that happened, uh, my mother left here yeah. and the house became vacant, the landmark oh, moved in. This was your so family they, business, if you like, your, your mother before you ran this place. Oh yes, my mother and my father and both my grandparents right. uh, were, were light keepers. But all that said, um, the... Uh, I live now five miles up the road in a place called Rathbury. Mm. I built my house there and when my mother retired from here I applied for the position as attendant lighthouse keeper. 
So it's uh, I just come here every now and again. I have to do checks on the place mm. and I have to maintain it if I see anything going wrong, fix it if I can't get a technician. And does modern technology allow you to monitor it from home all the time, make sure everything's okay? Is that how it works? That's how it works. And not only that, it's monitored over in Harwich in, in the UK. Right. So if anything uh, fails here, I get a phone call. I could get a phone call at one or two or three o'clock in the morning to tell me that the light has uh, failed and I'd run up to see if I can fix it. If I can't, I'll have to call a technician. And if I can, I'll restore it. Yeah. It all has to happen fairly quickly. Yeah. Because we can't afford to have um, this lighthouse not exhibiting light. And, and how often might something go wrong? They seem to be extraordinarily reliable things. Oh, they are very reliable and everything in it is in triplicate. So if something fails, there is a, a backup, for instance. Right. What kind of bulb is in there now? It's not a bulb. Is it, they're not, not burning gas anymore. Either, so no, is it's, it? it is a bulb. It's a it's, it's, um, metal halide bulb, quite a, a big, large bulb. There are two of them in on a, a lamp changer. If the bulb blows, she'll automatically change over to the second one. It'll send out a warning. It's not uh, a panic station, so I don't have to come up. But in the morning, I will have to come up and change the blown bulb. Right. If the ESB fails, the generator kicks in. If the generator fails, there's a battery bank that'll kick in again right. to keep it um, going for a couple of days. So the backups are... are very reassuring, you know, yeah, and yeah. Very, you can guarantee on them. It's, it's, it is fascinating from the, the early starts of Isn't it? the last yeah, century and yeah. the century before. Now then, Irene Kelleher approached you. She, she wanted to write a play about a lighthouse. That's right. How did that go? How did that conversation go? Were you surprised someone wanted to do that? I was, even though we get a lot of, um, a lot of people of great interest in lighthouses. But anyway, Irene was um, uh, inspired, shall I say, um, by the loss of the tree light keepers up in the Flannan Isles in Scotland. And then she came and stayed up in Clare Island of Mayo, and um, her appetite was whetted there, shall we say. And then to find out more, now I had a book um, that, I, that I wrote called uh, The Lightkeeper. She got her hands on that and she came to stay here at the Galley Head to, to experience and to find out uh, more about uh, what it was like to be a lightkeeper. Um, I brought her up here into the lighthouse just like I'm talking to you now and I gave her a complete history on it and then uh, now we talked about what life was like out on the rock stations like when you're on Fastnet now and the sea is, is hammering up over the top of it and all that. And um, Irene, uh, I left her alone then and she started writing away and I didn't take much notice of what she was doing. She left and I really didn't give a whole lot for what she had done. When she was gone, she sent me back uh, a copy of the first draft of her writing. And my goodness... When I read it, I just couldn't believe it, that she had produced this. Yeah. It was absolutely fantastic. She captured the spirit of it. She captured the spirit of it right to the, to, to the last detail. And um, well, For someone who's given their life to the service of the lights, mm. as it was, how much does it mean that a, a modern young playwright wants to do something like that? Well, this is an art. This is a skill. I, I don't believe that anybody... 
uh, can just do it. I think you have to be a special person to do that. And I, I would classify Irene as an artist in her own right. Uh, I really have the greatest of admiration for artists because I worked with uh, a few of them in the Irish Lights. And to me, the artists were, um, there, were kind, there were people who thought different to the conventional. Mm -hmm. And that showed very much with Irene. Um, with the way she was able to pick up on every little detail that I was explaining to her and lo and behold so she said to me she has come back several times since now because we're very there were parts of it she wanted to um, home in on and she uh, said to me the last time she was here she said now she says it's up on draft eight and I'm not going to see it. You wouldn't let me see any part of it. I only saw the first draft. So it'll be on in the Firkin Crane now on Friday. And I am just dying to get to see it. So she has a place booked for me. <laughs> Lastly, we're here at, what time is it? It's quarter to eight in the evening. It's a beautiful summer's evening. It won't be dark for hours yet. Yeah. So what will happen? Does it just automatically kick in? Yes. Yes, it does. It's like the street lights. There's a little photoelectric cell there that will tell it it's dark enough and the light will light. And in the morning, the same photo cell will tell it when the sun gets up, it's time to switch out the light. Now, um, when that happens in the morning, when the light switches out, the lens continue to revolve. Yes, I see that all the when time. When this was manually operated by a weight-driven clockwork motor, we would stop the lens, because you weren't going to be coming up during the middle of the day yeah. to winch up that weight. We'd stop the lens rotating. We pulled curtains down over the glass, and um, when they electrified it and automated it, this was going to be a problem because you now had the sun's rays shining back in through these highly powerful lens and they were going to set the place on fire. This they found out by experience and... Um, I was just going to ask you why the curtains? Yeah, to stop the sun. And when this was um, an oil burning light, quite often at night time the light would go on fire. So what happened then, you'd have to come up into the lantern extinguish the light, change the burner, but the following morning the lens had turned completely black with the exhaust smokes and you, two keepers had to come and clean the lens. One man stood here on the outside, the other keeper was on the inside. So the guy on the inside had to keep moving, you couldn't stay steady while you'd be cleaning because in a few moments you'd smell your trousers starting to smolder. There are so many focal points for the sun inside there. Crikey. So it's, um, it, it's a beautiful piece of um, engineering. machinery, engineering. And all of it is hand assembled. Yeah. Wow. You know what? I, ever since I was a small boy, I've been fascinated by the workings of a lighthouse. It has been a pleasure to meet you this evening and to stand so close to something so simple yet so important. Gerald, thank you very much. It's a pleasure, PJ, an absolute pleasure to have you here. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. <laughs> 